Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Would you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 16? It's the text of our sermon. We set aside time each Lord's Day to open up together a part of God's Word. We do this because it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every word of Scripture has proceeded from God's mouth and is given to us as spiritual food to strengthen us unto salvation. God is a spirit and has made us in his image and after his likeness, which means that we're not just bodies, but also spirits. This distinguishes us from the animals. We have this dignity of possessing in ourselves a spirit being, which is like unto God. And just as our bodies need food to exist and to, to to be sustained, so do also does our spirit. So let us feast together now on God's word, the spiritual feast which he has given us to the building up of our souls. Now this particular meal comes from John 16, and it concerns the doctrine of the third person of the Trinity. God is one God in three persons, and this third person is classically understood to be the Holy Spirit. There's A lot about the Holy Spirit to be known and understood from Scripture, especially from the epistles, but I'm persuaded that this is ground zero for the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, John 16. And the reason I believe that is because of the context in which this teaching occurs. It's at the very height, the very kairos, the critical moment in Jesus' ministry, just at the point when the the roller coaster is about to go down the hill and... uh, we're like locked into a, a, a course that there's no going back from. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed into the hands of sinners, on the night that he instituted this holy supper, on the night which he more plainly than ever was telling his disciples about what was about to take place and why and what it would mean for them. It was a very emotionally charged moment, a very intense moment. And at that moment, God, Jesus opens up for his disciples this wonderful promise of this gift of the Holy Spirit and tells them what he will do for them. Jesus was loved by his disciples as much as they knew to love him at the time. We don't know exactly what they knew and what they didn't know, but we do see them um, seeming to be ignorant of the spiritual realities surrounding Christ's work. And we see that in this passage. We see them being sorrowful at the very points that they should be glad. Jesus, responding to their sorrow, makes this astonishing remark. He says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Isn't that amazing? What a profound statement. Hard to fathom. But Jesus tells and assures his disciples, it is to your advantage that I'm going away. And he goes on to explain why. He says, because if when I do, if I don't go, then the Holy Spirit, the helper, the comforter won't come. But if I do, he will come to you. And he will convince you, he will convict you and all the world with you of the things pertaining to salvation in his name, in in Christ's name. What this means for us, what we're to do with it, is what we need to consider this morning. So let's now stand together in honor of the reading of God's Word. This is from John chapter 16. These are the words of God, and they are eternally true. Jesus says to his disciples, These things I have spoken to you, so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you, 
so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Let's pray. Father of all wisdom, help us now as we look into your word to understand this great mystery of your spirit. How it is that physical separation from your son, our Savior, could be to our advantage. And how we might, by the help of your spirit, take a full advantage of it. We pray this in the name that is above every other name, the very name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you see, first of all, that the disciples were sad. Jesus points this out. He notices their sadness, their sorrow. He says that it has filled their heart in verse 6. The words that he has said has caused them to be filled with sorrow. The closer Christ came to his death, the more frankly he spoke, about it. He wanted his disciples to be armed, to be prepared against the temptation of thinking that he was failing them, that he was failing somehow. You know, this is what uh, the Muslims say about Jesus and about uh, Jesus our God. They say, they mockingly say that he is a failure. He died. What kind of God dies? proves that he's not a God in their eyes. But this was not Jesus failing. Quite the opposite. This is Jesus absolutely succeeding in the most profound way. This is him fulfilling his Father's perfect will, which derived or emanated from the Father's love for all the world. Christ's work of redemption, his mission here on earth included not just his death and his burial, this is why the crucifixes in Catholic churches are misleading. There's much more to salvation in Christ than the crucifixion. It depends, his work depended also on his resurrection from the dead and his final departure and ascension to the, the highest place in the universe, far above all rule and authority. Jesus' propitiating sacrifice is atoning work where he paid the penalty and suffered the wrath of his Father for our sins. He brought on himself so that it would not come upon us. His propitiating sacrifice would be of no effect, would have no power, if he did not take that sacrifice up to, be, to live ever before the Father to make intercession for us and to bear the marks of that sacrifice permanently and forever in God's sight. Jesus could not be the way to the Father, the way by which all men come to the Father, unless he himself went that way. He had to return to the Father. His royal position as the King of kings and the Lord of lords would be, it would be um, forfeit if he refused to sit upon the throne that his Father had promised him if he succeeded in his mission from which it says he must reign until he makes his enemies a footstool for his feet, both his enemies and ours. He must reign there, meaning that if he failed to, he would fail. The mission of Christ's church in, on earth would completely fail to even get off the ground if we did not receive the benefit of the gifts which he dispenses as he ascends into heaven. It says in Ephesians 4 that he, as he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Gifts for spreading the church throughout the world. Jesus, if he was here in the flesh, could not be everywhere. 
And so he, he had something better, which was to depart and send his spirit so that we would have the mind and the gifts of Christ in this world. Profound, amazing. We would not take comfort in the hope of heaven if Jesus did not assure us that he went before us to prepare a place for us there. So he absolutely had to ascend to the Father. To fail in this one part of redemption would be to fail in all its parts. To leave his work half done would be to leave it all undone. And so he had to go home. Now, this news, the fact of it, was to be an encouragement to his disciples. It was, to, it was to, for their comfort, for their joy, for their ultimate good. And yet, what do we see? We see that it fills them with sorrow. We see that it makes them very unhappy. And earlier in chapter 14, Jesus has been having this conversation for some chapters now. And early in chapter 14, he rebukes them for this despondency, for this sorrow. He says, in verse 28 of 14, If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. And so why didn't they rejoice? Why were they filled with sorrow? According to Jesus, it's because they did not love him. If they loved him, they would rejoice. They did not yet love Christ as they should. They did not understand who and what he was, what his purpose was, the full ramifications of it. They did not know what he was doing. The immense spiritual benefits of his ministry were hidden from their minds, and so they did not understand his departure to be in any sense a good thing. And Christ says it's because they, had a, they failed to love, them, love him properly. Now, who did they love if they did not love Jesus as they should? They did not fail, of course, as none of us fail, to love themselves as they should. <laughs> sort of inevitable. Scripture takes our self-love for granted. Self-esteem is just completely misguided, isn't it? The self-esteem movement. They loved themselves, and we see that in this passage. This is another reason, I think, that they were despondent and sad. Not only was Jesus leaving them down a difficult road, but he was leaving them to walk themselves in their own turn down a difficult road. Verses 2 to 3 say that they will make you outcasts from the synagogues. They'll excommunicate you from their churches. That's a pleasant thought. It gets better, though. The hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that they're offering service to God. So they have this to look forward to. First, their excommunication from the church, and then their death. A flowery beds of ease ahead for these disciples. Listen, this is a little antiquated in its wording, but listen to what the uh, Puritan or Pres the, the Scottish Presbyterian George Hutchison wrote on this text. He said, The disciples were much saddened with the apprehension, the dread of his departure, and that in his absence they were to be engaged in a difficult service of the ministry and of standing for him, wherein they might probably expect much hazard and difficulty and little success, they being but weak men. Their master, for whom they stood, was despised as a seducer and a mock king, even among the Jews, among their countrymen. Their message was very unpleasant, as being completely contrary to flesh and blood and the principles that are universally received and the carnal interests of men, the gospel being contrary to our flesh, where we have to submit ourselves to God confess our sins and come under um, the conviction of sin. It's completely contrary to our flesh, to our, our natural desires. And, the um, and consequently, the opposition to be made against this gospel and this message, this ministry, would be very strong and violent and universal. This is why they were feeling sad. This is the news they were hearing, listening with their natural fleshly ears. Now, they were filled with sorrow at these words because, like us, they're afraid of suffering. 
They were the thought of trials ahead, of difficulties, the thought of being rejected by men, the thought of being even killed, filled them with despair. Not only is our master leaving us, but he's leaving us to the wolves. Thanks a lot. But this is faithless, and we know it's faithless because Scripture over and over again tells us that what, what, should, what should we do in suffering? What should we do in the face of persecution? We should rejoice. Jesus himself says this early in his ministry. He says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Joy is the faithful response to suffering, to opposition, to persecution. But it is not the natural response, as we see in the disciples and what we know by experience, don't we? We know that joy is not our, is not our natural inclination when we meet the thought, the threat of opposition. And because we don't count it all joy, we keep our mouths shut. Do you see yourself in these men? Can you see yourself in these men? I certainly can. We are so addicted to our comforts, to our pleasures, that we recoil from anything that might threaten our ease, that might upset our comforts, even when it leads to the, clearly to the advancement of God's glory and the spread of his kingdom, even when it leads to our own reward increasing in heaven. Where do we find the power to rejoice in suffering? Where do we find it? Well, we find it in the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus observes his disciples' unhappiness. But notice that he is not in bondage to their feelings about him at that moment so as to fail in his task of serving and loving them. It says earlier, just preceding this long discourse, this long um, sermon that, that Jesus um, proclaims to his disciples, um, that John introduces it this way. He says in John 13, 1, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. And he was not put off by their negativity, by their sorrow. How many of us are put off at the thought of someone not liking us? Our own children. We don't discipline our own children from fear of them not liking us. Thank goodness that Jesus is not like us. Not like us. He has not put off the task of loving his people, of being tender in his love, right at the point of their greatest resentment of it. What a great parent Jesus would make. We should be like him in this. Again, that same Scottish Presbyterian, George Hutchison, writes, As Christ does nothing for or to his people but what is useful and profitable for them, so he is so tender as not to withhold what is useful just because it satisfies not their sense, but is grievous to their flesh, as knowing well, he knows well that what is profitable will be pleasant to them in the end. No discipline for the moment is joyful, but what? Afterward, it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It will be peaceful and pleasant to us in the end. Jesus is, is such a tender father that he will see it through when he knows it's in our interest. Their sorrow was a kind of persecution. Just as our children's rebellion and and resentment of our discipline of them is a kind of persecution of us as their parents. And it's very deeply felt. And we have to very much overcome it, don't we, parents, when we go ahead and do what's in their best interest. 
Their, their sorrow was a persecution against Jesus. It was a sign of their disapproval at his words, a sign of their faithlessness, which would have been discouraging and disappointing to him. But he sees it through to the end. He's, uh, he remembers that they are but dust. He remembers their frame. And he endeavored next to encourage and strengthen with a, the promise of a helper. So we saw that the, sorrow, the, the, the disciples were sorrowful at the news of Jesus' departure and its implications for themselves. And we also see that Jesus will not leave his disciples in their sorrowful state, but promises to send them a helper and a comforter. Now in Greek, the name given here for the Holy Spirit, which has been variously translated as helper or comforter or advocate, is paraclete. Paraclete is a difficult word to translate. It sort of encompasses all of those terms, which is why it's difficult to choose one. None of them, none of them gets it exactly right in and of itself. It's a legal word. It comes from the ancient world where a man would, would be considered in the eyes of a court uh, a sort of reliable advocate for someone. You could call someone in who was close to the situation, who knew things firsthand, who maybe knew the witness and could give... Um, lend their support to him. They could come in and say, Your Honor, I know this person. Here's my experience of him. And this testimony in his offering is either consistent or inconsistent with what I know about him. This is a paraclete, an advocate, someone who comes in and, and argues on behalf of someone. Now, Jesus in, is an advocate. He's our advocate. He's our paraclete before God. He goes to the Father and he stands forever in God's presence and he bears the marks of his own sacrifice and he offers as a reason for our acquittal his own righteousness and perfect obedience and he says, Father, look upon me as you look upon them. And he says, acquit these people. I have purchased them with my own blood. He's our advocate, our paraclete with the Father. The Holy Spirit is called by Jesus a paraclete. He, first and foremost, is God's advocate before the world. He comes down and he convicts the world. He comes and he persuades men. He, he overcomes the obstacles of our reason, of our flesh, of our pride, and convinces us, persuades us to submit to God, to believe the gospel. He is the one who comes into this world and convinces us, who is God's advocate to the world. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, you know that great section at the beginning of Corinthians where he talks about not many mighty and not many weak, and he talks about the, the foolishness of preaching, and he talks about not coming in cleverness of speech. He says this about it in chapter 2. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. His words were not persuasive in and of themselves. They're not mighty words. But they were made effectual, as humble and simple as they were, by the power of God's Spirit at work, overcoming the resistance of sinful men, minds which are completely dark and closed off to God's truth, hearts that are hard and will not believe. The Holy Spirit comes in power and destroys all those obstacles and is an advocate for God, for Jesus Christ in this world. He's also an advocate, we'll see, for the, the disciples themselves as they go out into the world to engage men with the gospel. He is their advocate to the world as well. Now there's something about this you've caught already that I'm talking about this word conviction in maybe a sense that, that is surprising to you. The Spirit comes and convicts. You've heard me equivocate and say, convince. 
Well, I believe that this is actually closer to the meaning that, the, that, the, that John the Spirit uh, means here, that there's more than one way in which we use the word convict. We tend to think of it when we hear this passage as like a punitive word, like a fault-finding word. The Holy Spirit comes down to convict um, in God's courtroom the world. They're guilty of sin. They're guilty of unrighteousness. They're, They're guilty before your judgment. But I don't believe that's what the Holy Spirit means here. We also use the word convict in this other way. We, if a man is full of conviction, he's been thoroughly convinced of something. And I think this is what the Holy Spirit means. The Holy, he means that he, when he comes, he will convince the world. What a claim. He will convince the world. What will he convince the world of? This is the, the last main point that we want to look at today. What will he convince the world of? He will convince them of these three things we see of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. And we see in verse 9 that each of these categories of his work is fleshed out a little bit so that we understand that they all pertain to the ministry of Jesus Christ. He is the advocate of Jesus in this world, convincing men of the truths concerning him. Concerning sin, in verse 9, because they do not believe in me, says Jesus. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. And we know from the rest of Scripture that this means that Jesus has judged him. He has conquered. He has gone in and bound the strong man and is now plundering his house of all his goods. Let's look at each of these statements in turn. Number one, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. The Spirit's work in this world, His advocacy in the world, begins here with the conviction of sin. There is no way to come to a saving understanding of Jesus, to have any sense of need of His blood sacrifice, apart from having this deep and abiding sense of your own guilt. Remember Pilgrim and Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's great work, Pilgrim's Progress, should be reading this to your children, parents. It's a wonderful book, and it has full of all these wonderful illustrations. Um, but the, the basic illustration is that Pilgrim, or who, who is named Graceless at first, and he's living in the city of destruction, and he realizes that he has this unbearable burden on his back, and the burden represents sin. And he doesn't know what to do about the burden, and he reads in a book, that it can be relieved in some way. And he seeks with all his might to that relief that's promised him, which sets him on a course away from the city of destruction. And that is emblematic of his deep and abiding sense of his guilt before God, his sin. And it's such a weight upon him. And that is the very beginning of the whole story that leads ultimately to his finding a home in heaven, coming into glory. This is where we begin, the conviction of sin. There is no hope of, of latching on to Jesus, of grabbing hold of salvation in him through any other door than this, the conviction of sin. Now this is a hate, this is a, this is a putrid thing, a hated thing. Do you find how many of those passages do you just adore and love in Scripture that describe you in the particulars of your sin? How many of you just rejoice to hear God describe you as having none, no righteousness? How many of you like to hear the description that, you, that the poison of snakes or of adders is on your lips? That you kill men in your heart? when you're angry with them without a cause. You murder and you're guilty. That there is no, none of us who seeks after God. No, not one. That all of us are depraved creatures. That we are exposed to God's displeasure and, and deserving only of his wrath. That we are completely unfit 
in ourselves for fellowship and communion with him. Well, this is what the Bible describes of us, and yet we hate it. We hate it. We resist it. It's completely repugnant, putrid to our flesh, to our, to our fleshly way of seeing ourselves, to our pride. It's contrary to our nature to accept this. And so we see that we're completely helpless unless the Holy Spirit comes and overpowers this pride, this resistance in us to the truth of it. We're completely helpless and we can't even take the first step towards God. Conviction of sin is meant to drive us to the cross. There's many who try to come to Jesus on different terms in a different way. Try to, to, we want to see Jesus not as someone who atones for sin, but as someone who sets a good moral example or someone who had some pretty profound things to say that we can follow and that we can try to follow at least and put into practice. But this is to misunderstand him entirely. Yes, he is an example for us. There's no doubt about it. We should desire to be like him in every respect. But this is to misunderstand the heart of it, which is that Jesus first and foremost came to be a sacrifice for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God, be set free from the curse of the law, set free to obey God with a new heart. Has the Spirit convinced you of your sinfulness? Are you still laboring under the delusion maybe that church is about finding some helpful thoughts to help you balance out the scales of good and bad in your life so that you have a little bit more good going on when you stand before God than you have bad? Isn't that how we think when left to ourselves, that there's some hope of that, and we just need to get some encouragement for it. We can really, deep down, we really have it within us. Someone has to just do the work. We need a spiritual life coach. We need a life coach. And that's what our pastors have become for us. But it's hopeless. Scripture works very hard to show that it's absolutely hopeless. And yet we need to be convinced of this, and the Holy Spirit is the one who does it. Has he convinced you? Secondly, he convinces or convicts the world concerning righteousness because he says, I go to the Father and you no longer see me. The conviction of sin is not by itself sufficient to secure our salvation. Pilgrim was not saved just because he felt that big heavy pack on his back. He had to flee. He had to come to the cross where it could be relieved. He had to take hold of the righteousness of Jesus by faith, the great exchange as it's called, where Christ takes upon himself the, the burden of sin and gives us robes of righteousness, his own righteousness to clothe ourselves in. How can we know that Jesus was a historical figure? He's gone. How can we know? How can we know that he was who he said he was, that he did what he said he did, that it meant what he says it meant? How can we know that Jesus actually rose from the dead, that he actually ascended and is now living in heaven, making intercession for us? Well, we can't know, can we? There's no amount of arguments that I can bring forward now. There's no amount of persuasive words of wisdom that I could use to convince you of this truth. The Holy Spirit has to overpower out the, the complete resistance that is us to these truths. We will not believe them unless the Holy Spirit comes and convinces us of them. So this is the first sense in which will be his righteousness is vindicated by the Spirit. It says Jesus is vindicated by the Spirit in Timothy. I think this is what it means. He is, uh, that the Spirit convinces us that he is who he said he was, that he is righteous through and through, and that we have a share in it by faith.
You see this exemplified in the unbelief of the disciples here prior to the day of Pentecost. Here in John 16, they are unbelieving and despairing, despondent. They are filled with sorrow at the very things that should bring them much comfort. Do you see that? Jesus is telling them things that should encourage and uplift them, things that should excite them, fill them with hope and joy, and yet they're despondent and filled with sorrow. And then compare that to Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. What do we see there? Completely different animal, don't we? Different men entirely. The, The switch has been flipped. They are now men full of conviction, full of hope, as if all doubt has been taken away, the veil has been lifted from their eyes, and they are able to peer into heaven, into spiritual truths, and to speak boldly and confidently about them. This is what we need. We need the Holy Spirit to persuade us, such that we lay hold of Jesus by faith, and also are filled with conviction to overflowing, so that we are full of testimony of these things in our workplace, at school, wherever we are. We are full of the testimony we see that the Spirit brought about in the apostles' lives. So that's the second thing. First, sin, and then righteousness, and now judgment. If you have the first two convictions, if the Spirit has worked them in you, a conviction of sin and a conviction of righteousness, then this third one, the conviction of judgment, is perfect for keeping you um, in those first two convictions. It comes with both a positive and a negative encouragement. The positive is obvious. It derives from the statement that the ruler of this world has been judged. That's a very positive thought for Christians. If you you have believed in Jesus, it's a a way big bonus to, to realize that he has judged the ruler of this world, your great enemy and former Lord. He's judged him. He's defanged him. He's no more a threat to you. Yes, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour you, but one little word shall fell him. Resist him firm in your faith, and he will flee from you. This is the work of Jesus in having judged and conquered Satan. He's no more a threat to you. good news and a very positive encouragement. The ruler of this world has been judged. There's also, though, this implied negative. If he's been judged, he's been judged by Jesus, who has ascended to the highest place and is over all rule and authority, and a day has been appointed for him to judge the world in righteousness, and we must all stand and give an account of ourselves to God. And so the thought of that keeps us revisiting Steps one and two, over and over again throughout our lives. We're convicted of our sins as we consider the awesome throne of our Lord. The day of his wrath. The vengeance he will bring upon his enemies. We are driven low. We're humbled. We're reminded of our need of of a propitiation of the righteousness of Jesus. And so we return to the principles, the fundamentals of our faith over and over again as the Spirit continually convinces us and convicts us of this day of judgment, the dread day of judgment. Consequently, we should sing about it. You know that the church used to sing about this in a just sort of a ho-hum way. Usually every fall there was a, there's a hymns that attended the harvest time because so much of the harvest in imagery is associated with the day of judgment in Scripture. And the church used to just sort of like, yep, let's sing about, time to sing about judgment. And they would have a, they'd turn to that, the, whatever, the 500s or something in their, in their hymnals, and they would sing, O day of terror and wrath. This is because they loved the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They loved the Spirit. They wanted to be convinced of, by him of these great truths which were for their spiritual good. Well, these are the aspects of the Holy Spirit's ministry, and they encompass all that's necessary for our salvation. Categorically, this is is abundantly, God abundantly supplying for our need. 
the kind of faith that lays hold of Jesus truly and that spills over into confident, faithful witnessing to others is supplied by the Holy Spirit in these three ways. And so what use is it for us? What do we learn from it? How do we profit? Well, first of all, brothers and sisters, we should be humble as we see how entirely our salvation depends upon the power of God and how we can't even lift a finger to come to God in our own strength. In fact, we would only resist him. We would only resist him continually if the Holy Spirit did not come and convince us otherwise. We should be humble. And I I believe that the danger of spiritual pride is greatest is great in us, but also especially in our children. And many of us came to know the Lord midstream after having rebelled and lived um, contrary to God, um, senseless of his grace for many years, and the Holy Spirit sort of came upon us in power in a moment, a time that we can point to and we can look back upon and, and say there was, there was night and now there's day. There was the old man and now there's the new man. But it happens in Christian homes that children grow up when they're well taught, instructed, prayed for, taught to pray, that they grow up not having that sort of dramatic experience, but a more gradual one, almost an imperceptible one. They grow up, some of us grow up, some of our children I expect will grow up not remembering a time when they weren't a Christian. And the danger there of spiritual pride is enormous because you don't have this dramatic experience to reflect upon that proves to you that it's the Holy Spirit and not you. You were living in sin. It's the classic conversion story, right? If, you know, if I was going to be a real evangelist here, I would, in the classic sense, I'd stand up here and I'd tell you my, con- my conversion experience, and it would be so dramatic that it would be convicting to you. And I'm not knocking conversion experiences. They're good. I'm thankful for mine. Although mine was quite progressive not a point in time. So it happens, and the, and the danger of spiritual pride in our children is great. We have to teach them that their salvation depends entirely on the Holy Spirit, that if he's enlightened their eyes to know the truth, it's because he has overcome their resistance and sin and pride, and that they should not be proud, but be very humble and continue to rely upon him daily. I can't stress this enough. It's so important for, remember in my prayer, that I, I was asking that the Lord would, um, ha, that we would see a continuation to the next generation of faithfulness in our church. Well, I think it's crucial that we instruct our children, our covenant children, that their salvation depends upon the Holy Spirit. We should be humble. But we should also be confident. We should be confident in our hope that if we have these convictions at work within us, that we have the Holy Spirit from God. If you have the conviction of sin at work in your life, if you have to some degree the, the hope of, of salvation in Christ and the Holy Spirit has given you eyes to see the righteousness of Jesus and to believe on his name, if you tremble at the thought of standing and giving an account before him, Brothers and sisters, you have the Holy Spirit. This is his ministry. This is the essence of it. Have hope. Press on. Continue to walk by the Spirit and to increasingly not carry out the desires of your flesh. We should, though, also be confident in our evangelism. Because why? Because it says, he, when he comes, will convict the world. How often do we get frozen in our tracks because we think it depends upon us to articulate it just so, so that we will persuade somebody with our eloquence, with our um, reason of the truths of the gospel. Did that work with you? Is that what you think happened? If so, I'm afraid that you're just smugly naive at best and maybe on a very dangerous place with your faith. If you're not completely convinced that the Holy Spirit gave you new life 
regenerated you miraculously, opened your eyes when they were shut tightly to God's truth, forced them open with his own arguments and not with persuasive ones or, you know, sort of, because, you know, you're clever and you figured that out. It doesn't depend on us to persuade men. That's my point. But the Holy Spirit is pleased to use you. So don't fall off in the other ditch. Once you get figured out that it depends on the Holy Spirit, we become the frozen chosen, don't we? The other direction. In one sense, we get bunched up because we're so afraid that it depends on us that we won't say a word. We won't be open our mouths and be stupid us. Trust God to work through us. And on the other hand, we will what? We'll get complacent and say to ourselves, we have no responsibility here. But the Holy Spirit is never to be pit against means which he is pleased to use to perform his work. And you and I are those means. Our testimony, our witness to the truth of the gospel is the means that the Holy Spirit wants to use to build his church, to convert Bloomington, to convince the world. Stupid old you with your stupid old words about Jesus. That's what we need to have faith for, brothers and sisters. We need to have faith to open our, our, our mouths and allow to trust him for the words, to trust him to use our feeble and not persuasive words and arguments. We don't come with words of wisdom and persuasion. We come with the power of the Holy Spirit who is promised to us. Now, if we don't see this confidence in us, which I believe we don't as a church, what do we do? Where do we turn? Well, we turn to the promise of the Holy Spirit. We ask for him. That's the third thing we should do. We should ask that God would pour him out upon us. He's done it before. Acts 2 is a wonderful account of what it looks like when the Holy Spirit is poured out. The kind of conviction, the kind of boldness that descends upon men when he is poured out. Isn't this what we need? College ministry, isn't this what you need this year? Dads in the workplace, moms in the workplace, isn't this what you need around the water cooler? boldness to preach the gospel. It's, why does Scripture say we, don't, we lack things? Very simple answer. We don't ask. You have not because you ask not. Jesus says, particularly about the Holy Spirit, that if you fathers, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We have not because we ask not. Why don't we ask? That's the last point I'll make. Why don't we ask for the Holy Spirit? Why don't we want him and his ministry in us and through us? There's this whole argument or this whole accusation that's leveled against the Presbyterians. And it's fair enough and well taken, at least by me. And that is, we like things um, too controlled, too rigid, um, too safe. Which, and this is a sign, it's said, of our not appreciating the third person of the Trinity. Not valuing his ministry. Not giving him any room to work. Now, point taken, keep it coming. It's a good criticism. As a Presbyterian, I receive it. It's helpful to me to be reminded of this tendency in, in me. But I think there's something that applies across the board in America, not just to the Reformed churches, not to the Presbyterians only, but it's something, there's, there's a cessationism. Do you know this word cessationism? It's, it's, about, it's a question about whether the Holy Spirit's miraculous evidences of his ministry, the speaking in tongues, miraculous healings, were meant to continue and do continue today, or were only 
tied to the time in which Scripture was being written as a confirmation of the apostles and their ministry and their special authority. That's an argument well worth having, and we have it in this church constantly. But there's a, there's a cessationism that's uh, the real problem. There's a ceasing of, or a view of God's spirit and his ministry that is, uh, is thought to be ceased or to have ceased, that we, um, that's rampant in the church today. What is it? Well, it, it is that we don't like to live under the conviction of our sins. We don't like our pastors to preach to us and to remind us of our sinfulness. We don't actually, when it comes to it, prefer to depend entirely on Christ and his righteousness, but are very much in, in, in love with ourselves, and, 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 and that's expressed in that we depend upon ourselves and try to, to peer down into our navels until we can scratch deep enough to find some value there. And we certainly don't like to be reminded to any degree in our songs or our sermons or anywhere, the parts of Scripture that talk about the Day of Judgment, we just go, bloop, (laughs) forget that. That's not the pretty part. I'm afraid, brothers and sisters, that this is the real problem, cessationism, that we don't much approve of the Holy Spirit in the fundamentals of his ministry. We don't want our ministers to preach to us about sin, about righteousness, or about judgment. And we certainly don't want to have to open our mouths and speak about those things to others, to be used by the Spirit. And yet we see that this is the very foundation of faith and the very foundation upon which the, whole, the church is built, this ministry of the Spirit, The day he was poured out and these things began to come about and men began to be convinced of their sins and of their need of Christ in a dramatic way, the day of Pentecost, 3,000 men and women in one go. the, the, The Spirit and his ministry is the very foundation of this work, of advancing the cause of Christ, of growing the church. And yet I don't think that we appreciate it much. So this, brothers and sisters, is what we need to repent of. Our resistance, our grieving of the Holy Spirit. We need to offer ourselves again afresh in repentance to God, asking him for his spirit. That the conviction of sin, the conviction of righteousness, the conviction of judgment would be strong in us. That it would well up into words of truth and proclamation to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our civil magistrates and leaders, that we would never shut up about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Amen.